Hello and welcome to this week's Newspeak, the New Culture Forum's current affairs show with me, Emma Webb, and I'm joined this week by senior fellow and historian and commentator Rafe Hadelmanku. We're going to be discussing this week's news stories all the way from abortion to attacks on religious liberty in the United, not in the United States, in Canada even. So let's get started by talking about this decision in, um, in the US. The, the US uh, Supreme Court has made the decision to overturn Roe versus Wade, which was a, an historic judgment um, that has been portrayed as um, really a kind of cornerstone of abortion rights, not just in the United States, or women's rights to bodily autonomy in the United States, but also it's been portrayed as something that was significant all across the globe. Um, do you want to start by giving us a sense and, and viewers a sense of, um, of what Roe versus Wade was as a judgment? and? the importance of that and why there's such a hubbub now that this decision has been overturned. Yes, so abortion in this country is largely a settled issue. It's still very contentious on, on the, the extremes, but uh, in America it's probably one of the most um, hotly contested subjects. Uh, the Democrats and people on the left have for 50 years assumed it was a completely settled matter there because mm -hmm. of Roe v. Wade. And what Roe v. Wade did around 50 years ago was to establish a national right to access abortion across the country. Any woman could do that. And yes, it is women who have abortions in case there's any <laughs> confusion about that subject. For the avoidance of death. Um, and, uh, What's happened now is there's been a leak, so it hasn't actually been overturned yet. There'll be a judgment in June, and we don't know the, full, the final details. Uh, we've had access, I believe probably from a disgruntled employee outraged at this decision, that the Supreme Court, by a majority of five to four, is going to rule to overturn Roe v. Wade. And uh, this has obviously created a, fu a furore. Uh, and what it would mean if it happens is that rights over abortion will be devolved down to the states as it was originally. Mm -hmm. And there are around 26 states, so basically 50% of whom would actually make abortion illegal. And this is an important point as well, that it's being portrayed as uh, an attack on women's rights to abortion. But actually, the, the, the overturning of that judgment doesn't mean that they're banning abortion in the United States. It means that actually they're making a decision uh, in favor of, of more democratic um, control over abortion rights by state. And so those who have been angry saying with women are 50% of the population and women are against this, but actually women are 50% probably in each state in the United States. Maybe there are some states where there are more men than women, um, but that they will have a choice over their own uh, their own state in terms of you know they'll be able to remove people if they if they don't uh, if they want to ban abortion and they don't agree with it so actually in, in a way this originally is is almost using the narrative of rights to try and circumvent the democratic control over abortion because you've seen like Amnesty International tweeting saying that abortion is a human right. Um, so I guess what I'm saying is that what's interesting about this is that the way that it is being portrayed in the media and all of the hysteria surrounding it, there's quite a contrast with the, the reality of what this means, because it doesn't mean banning abortion in the United States, it just means more democratic control. That's right, and it's taking it out of the hands of unelected justices who've become extremely politicised now in a way that we don't see here in this country with judges who completely reflect the views of whichever president put them in, into power. And it, yes, it does uh, devolve this to states. And, you know, those states that uh, are going to most likely ban abortion uh, reflect 
particularly well the entire cultural war that you see in America. So both of the coast of America, the heartland of liberalism, will have abortion still there. And of course, when it comes to the deep south and parts of the uh, parts of the Midwest and so forth, you, you won't have that. But yes, if people want to travel to have an abortion, that's not going to be outlawed. Although some states are saying they may make it illegal to go to another state for an abortion, it is something which is up to the democratic mm -hmm. will of the public in those states. Now, the Democrats could also try to put forward legislation to overturn the Supreme Court ruling and enforce legislation to make abortion uh, legal across the country again. But whilst they have a majority in, in, the, in the House of Representatives, you need to have a 60% majority in the Senate mm -hmm. for such a law to pass. And that's not going to happen because it's evenly split. And as we, as we know, with the, um, with the midterm elections coming up, the Republicans are going to make inroads there again. So I think the Democrats are out mm -hmm. of luck if they think there's going to be any chance to do away with that. So my, my understanding of this um, judgment is that they're, they're essentially they're saying that and I know that this is something that had been disputed since since this judgment was passed, that the reasoning behind it was it was um, disputed, that they're, they're arguing essentially that it was wrong to, to interpret uh, abortion as being a constitutional right, that it, it isn't a constitutional right in the United States. And that's what the sort of the point of the law that they are discussing. Am I correct? In, in that's that? right. In fact, if you, if you read if you read the opinion of, of the court, or, or, uh, of, of Judge Alito, he says that, you know, unlike the right to bear mm -hmm. arms, the Second Amendment and the right to free speech, there isn't a clear right to have an abortion in the, in the Constitution. Uh, and yes, but it does go fundamentally to those moral issues. It's, it's an ethical and moral issue. Uh, who, uh, does a woman have exclusive right to her body or is there the right of the child to life? And then if so, at what point does life start? Do you see this as, uh, firstly, do you see this as, as kicking off uh, and sort of new discussion around in the within the culture wars because I know a lot of people have been worried that this is going to have in the same way that they claim that Roe versus Wade had in the first place huge implications for abortion laws around the world that this is going to have implications in other countries outside of the United States and do you think that particularly in the United States how I mean how do you see that fight playing out because obviously this isn't going to be the last word this is something the Democrats are going to fight back on. Well, look, most things that have come out of America in the last 50 years have not been good for the rest of the world. We're all dealing with the, the, the after effects of George Floyd, for example, a subject that has no relevance whatsoever to this country and yet uh, has been taken up by BLM radical activists over here. I'm not so sure that the abortion issue is going to make inroads in, say, Western Europe. It's, it, it's, much more of a settled, it's much more of a settled thing. It is, however, going to become a touch paper in American politics. Mm -hmm. And I think things are going to become even more incendiary. Uh, and the divide between Democrats and Republicans on the issue of abortion is wider mm -hmm. now than any time in the last 20 or 30 years, which is interesting. Around 80% of Democrats think that abortion should be legal in most, if not all, cases, and it's only mm -hmm. around 39% of uh, Republicans. Now, as a nation, around 60% of Americans are actually in favor of abortions in most, if, if not all, cases. So I'm not actually sure that this ruling, even though I may or may not be in favor of it, is actually going to help the Republicans when it comes to the election. Because I think if Trump is going to be the candidate going forward, given he appointed these justices there, if a decisive majority of the American population don't believe that this was the right decision to be made, and if Trump is still going to be in debates saying that he won the election, uh, and if the Democrats can, 
can stick on this January the 6th insurrection on him, I think he's going to have a very tough time. And I think uh, those are three issues which may actually become obstacles to the White House. You mentioned um, before the, the moral issues surrounding this. What did you think of the people holding up my body, my choice uh, posters in the, in the protest? They, they were protesting outside of the White House, I believe, or were they protesting outside of the Supreme Court? Either way, um, a lot of the people who are say, saying my body, my choice, will be people who were in favour of vaccine mandates. And this is something that's been pointed yeah. out as, a, as a, a sort of grave hypocrisy. The sheer hypocrisy of this. These are the people who wanted to have forced vaccinations and yet are now saying my body, my choice. Mm. I mean, and why they can't see the irony there or, or the hypocrisy about that. But, you know, and it works the other ways too. You know, a lot of the people who are opposed to abortion are in favour of the death penalty. People who are um, in favour of abortion are uh, opposed to the death penalty. So if life is sacred, how do you actually balance those two competing views? Now, the Catholic position is at least uh, consistent on both points. Mm -hmm. They're against abortions and they're against the death penalty. But uh, lots of the other arguments, whatever side you're on, there are glaring holes in the logic, mm -hmm. I think. I think one thing that I, I, I've found interesting over the discussions I've seen happening over the last couple of days, particularly because I think in this country it's very, very difficult to have open conversations from a pro-life position because most people, it's become such a verboten subject that there are many people who, they'll have, you know, a, 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 ver a variety of views on it, not necessarily being a, an you know, anti-abortion absolutist, but they might believe that perhaps the, the amount of the window of time should be shorter in which a woman can have an abortion um, or, or that it should only be allowed in circumstances of, say, rape or incest and so on. But those si that side of the argument doesn't really get a hearing, even, even in the United Kingdom where we're less divided over this issue. Um, and one of the aspects of this, as I mentioned, Amnesty International um, tweeting that abortion is a human right, is that the debate has become so almost facile and crass because there's no recognition of the fact that the other side, far from being monsters, simply believe that the right to life is an actual human right and that there is a human life involved because the other side will say, well, it's just a clump of cells. And so it's, it's nothing like just, you know, throwing out a bit of trash. There's no moral difference there. And so what I found really interesting is that on the one hand, you've seen people um, pointing out the hypocrisy of those. And I think it is hypocrisy of those who say my body, my choice, except when it comes to vaccine mandates. But in the other direction, those who pointed out, well, you were against vaccine mandates, but you're also pro-life. I think actually that position is less hypocritical because, and it can only be viewed as hypocritical if you are failing to recognize that there is another human life involved. So the, the, there's just a simple biolog straightforward biological fact that women and men are biologically different and that has ethical implications because a woman can have a life inside of her. And so actually you can make a my, my body, my choice argument in relation to the bodily autonomy of the fetus also. It's actually not that different from vaccine mandates because the other side would presumably argue that the, um, the unborn child and, and the unborn child's life and right to life needs to be protected from the mother. Um, and we've seen cases recently people arguing for things like post-birth abortion that a, a mother should have the right to terminate the life of her child for mental health reasons physical reasons and so on um, 
And so for me, I think that actually a lot of the confusion in this discussion is coming from the fact that because we've not had that, that a f sort of fair-minded conversation for so long, the other side actually really don't understand the pro-life position. You're absolutely right. There's far too much emotion in this without actually any reasoned discussion and any re-evaluation of the science because the key point here is if you get a lot of the morality and ethics of this is based upon scientific evidence but as time marches on the science changes hugely in terms of when they believe life may, mm -hmm. may be there and there's this huge um, disagreement on those issues. Now um, unlike Peter Hitchens and Tim Stanley and others, I've always been consistently conservative. I've never wavered in my conservatism since I was a teenager. Um, but when it came to abortion, I was always confused because I tried to study the subject very well and the science seemed, uh, seemed out of kilter with the ethics and the morality of one side and on, on, and on the other side. And I think if people actually took time to actually look into the, mm -hmm. the various points at which abortions have been stated as being acceptable, they would get a far more nuanced understanding of the arguments of both sides because there are merits in the actual logical arguments, mm. but it's a question of, of, for me, when life starts. So, of course, if you're a Catholic, uh, it starts at the point of conception, which is immediately mm. with the fertilization of the egg. But then others would say it starts a week later with the implantation of the, uh, of the egg into the womb. Um, after that, about 16, and that takes about a week, I believe. Now, 16, 17 weeks later, you get what used to be called the quickening. And this was a, uh, a time when uh, the baby would first kick, for example. Now, this goes back to the time of Aristotle and St. Augustine, where, and it was actually part of Christian theology, that the soul entered the embryo at that point of the first kick. Uh, when Henry VIII's, one of his, one of his wives had, the, had a kick, there were bonfires litter all over. And I think what a lot of people don't realise is that in Britain, from around the 13th century to the 19th century, abortions were legal up to the quickening. So it wasn't mm. until that baby kicked that the abortions became illegal. Others would say well, it's when brain activity starts, that's when life starts. Others mm -hmm. will say it's when the fetus becomes viable outside of the womb. Uh, and as technology changes, of course, the viability outside of the womb becomes much more early. And, of course, it depends upon what facilities are in a hospital ward, for example, mm. uh, as well. And then you have those who say that it's basically uh, should be stopped just at the point of birth. But for me, a piece of skin separating a baby from the outside world yeah. doesn't seem very good. But those are all points along the timeline. And my view has always been to err on the side of caution because science always suddenly revealed actually things are early, things mm -hmm. start early, the heartbeat is earlier than we thought, there's brain activity earlier. So I've tended to, to err far more on, on the side of caution. But if you look at these things in that sense of sense, I think people can see that there are real logical mm -hmm. arguments and these aren't just uh, frenzied hysterical points of yeah. view based upon religion or dogma and of course it's very much a christian concept in the sense that in judaism and islam the rights of the mother actually do supersede the rights of the baby there's almost something um sort of vile and barbarous about the way that you uh, you see people d discussing or debating at university campuses there are loads of videos on youtube and the way that people talk about the fetus is almost as if it is um, I'm not sure how it should be described, but it's it, it's almost as if the the dehumanisation of the fetus is forced, like it's 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 a point of ideology that it that this is a bag of cells that can just be simply discarded. Like your appendix. Even even to the point, and and um, I was watching a video of this earlier of um, a, a woman arguing that that abortion should be allowed even 
while the woman is giving birth. And like you say, the difference between a baby inside of a mother and a baby outside, um, particularly in those later stages, is is almost sort of besides the point. And it's something that I found particularly, um, I was I was shocked and disgusted by um, when I discovered that through Heidi Crowter, this um, uh, Down syndrome activist woman who uh, has been uh, campaigning against our abortion laws in the UK, um, because it turns out, and I didn't know this, that you can have an abortion if the child has Down syndrome all the way to the point of birth. And her argument is that this is discrimination within the womb because it suggests that even outside of the womb that somehow people with Down syndrome are lesser people, le le less than fully human, if they can be um, sort of essentially killed just before birth, whereas a, a, a normal fetus wouldn't be, would be protected by the law. Um, and so I, there, there seems to me to be a kind of, like I said, sort of barbarism in how we the, the public debate has come to talk about the unborn child. Um, and I was talking to somebody yesterday at the pub about this, that um, only you know, maybe a decade ago, you would have had Labour MPs, Conservative MPs, religious and not religious, standing up and, def and arguing against abortion in the House. Uh, and now it has become so um, sort of, as I say, verboten as a subject that it's, I, I actually think this, this dehumanising language about the fetus has become normalised. It's entirely become uh, normalised and is actually quite despicable to see some of these vox pops you've referred to where people are mm. essentially treating a baby as if it were, you know, an, an, an appendix or an intestine that can just be disregarded. But of course, as with everything, the abortion issue also becomes tied up in race politics because a disproportionate number of ethnic minorities, black people in particular, have abortions compared to, say, white people. And therefore, this is also being seen as uh, tied up in, in all of those issues and you're denying the rights of, uh, of black people. So it's, it's just a, a convoluted mess. Shall we um, move on to discussing Neil Parrish, the MP who was caught uh, watching porn in Parliament? Um, but what I, not, not necessarily whether the rights and wrongs of him doing that and then choosing to resign over it, but what I felt thought was particularly interesting was how, how quickly, same as with the Sarah Everard um, murder, how quickly we went from a, an event, so in this case an MP watching porn in Parliament, to we need 50-50 men and women in parliament, uh, we need to deal with the, the culture of misogyny and so on. Um, and like I mentioned Sarah Everard, we went very, very quickly from the murder of an innocent young woman to conversations about whether or not men should be curfewed and locked inside because of systemic misogyny and toxic masculinity. Uh, how, how do you understand this leap? Because I can't fathom it. Had they got from an MP watching porn to we need 50-50, Men and women. Well, first of all, I have some breaking news for you that um, uh, Neil Parrish's wife has just left him. Um, he woke up this morning to find that she had written him a John Deere letter. Now, that's probably lost on a lot of people. It's lost on me. <laughs> John Deere's a, is a, well, a dear John letter is what traditionally a wife writes to her husband when she's leaving, but John Deere is a famous tractor brand. So, oh. so yes, <laughs> and you have to explain your joke. It rather loses the whole thing. But hopefully there, there are some older people out there who are laughing at that. I knew that. there were going to be tractor jokes, but I didn't expect that that was one of them. <laughs> but no, but you're absolutely right. What I found absolutely appalling here was this sort of almost consensus of opinion 
that there has never been a sleazier parliament than this one. Mm -hmm. That parliament has never been more unsafe for women, women than it is now, uh, and that drastic measures need to be taken to sort out uh, the culture that exists in parliament. Excuse me, there has never been a better time to be a woman in parliament mm -hmm. than now. Uh, the, just because um, Neil Parrish watched some porn in Parliament doesn't mean that this is the sleaziest Parliament ever. It means that we have social media now that enables you to have these devices. I'm pretty sure that if we had these smartphones 30, 40 years ago, particularly before cameras came in to show BBC Parliament, there would have been a hell of a lot more <laughs> MPs surfing. Uh, some people may have seen the, the, the meme of Jacob Rees-Mogg looking at a, a Victorian woman exposing her ankle. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I'm, sure, yeah, and I'm sure every single male MP, given by British standards, has watched porn at some point in their life. Um, and similarly, the idea that uh, this is the sleaze that people have pointed out, you know, the um, Owen Paterson scandal, for example, as another example of sleaze in modern day politics. Well, I'm sorry, he's now the exception. Before that, he would have been in the main. The number of people with outside interests was exponentially higher until it has been mm -hmm. in recent years. Uh, and of course, now w women are far more vocal about things that happened to them. We've had Anne-Maria Trevelyan saying that she was pushed up against a wall. Before, that would never have been told to anybody. None mm -hmm. of this would have been announced. There are no mechanisms in place. So I think that uh, all of this is, is completely over the top. And I'm so disappointed to see Andrea Leadsom and the Tory party advocating such a, a woke policy as, as a 50, 50 members of 50% female MPs. I mean, anybody who knows how these things work uh, I forget who it was, Julia Hartley Brewer or someone said that um, um, every time they've met MPs, um, two women MPs, one from a shortlist and one who wasn't, they instinctively knew which woman had been from the shortlist because the, the gap in talent and skill between the one who was elected because of their own merits and the one who was there on a shortlist uh, shows the reality of what quality of candidates you get. And you just have to look at the House of Lords, particularly the Labour MP, uh, Labour peers in the House of Lords, Baroness Udin, all of these mm -hmm. social workers and you know, party apparatchiks who get appointed to see that there's a complete dearth of talent there. Don't you, don't you think it's, uh, it's peculiar, let's say, that um, the Conservative Party and particularly many Conservative activists are not exactly illiberal when it comes to porn. They're not Mary Whitehouses. These are people who have been normalising porn through their comments and through um, their activism for years. They have claimed that, um, that porn is something that is, um, you know, I, I know this from personal conversations with people, that they believe that porn is, can be a li liberal thing, that it can, it can liberate women. Um, it's something that is you know they don't they don't believe in banning pornography and then when you see uh, an mp ca casually watching porn in parliament of course this is something that is inappropriate in the workplace but the reaction to it seems so overblown given how how people seem to not take porn as being such a terrible thing yeah no i i agree with you completely i mean what what amazes me is that the the, the two tory mps who spied this 
didn't just go to their own chief whip mm -hmm. and say to the chief whip, look, this chap is completely out of order. He needs to be brought in and given a severe dressing down not to do it again, rather than going through this whole um, shaming, which is, mm -hmm. again, now put the Tory party again in, under the spotlight and may risk it at the next local elections coming up mm -hmm. next week. So I just, I'm not, maybe it's me that's out of, out of keeping and out of touch, but I just thought the, the, the process by which this thing came to light and yeah. what he's been put through, I, I think is completely out of um, I'm, I'm proportion. Failing, I'm failing to understand how in their minds, um, as I say, presuming that they are actually themselves quite liberal when it comes to pornography and don't want to ban it, I'm struggling to see how they saw an MP watching porn and then thought this is an issue to do with misogyny that we need to make into this huge issue to do with women and women's rights. To me, it seems almost cynical. And I find it um, amusing, uh, horrible, but amusing that, it, that they, they see the solution to a culture of misogyny as they perceive it as being solved. They, they see the solution to that as being basically patronising women by, by insisting and having 50-50 shortlists and quotas. Because in Iceland, they managed to achieve 50-50 on the basis of merit with no quotas. Um, and th for me, the implication that Oliver Dowden made when he said that men will just put themselves forward for, for these things and they'll believe that they'll be really good at the job, but women need a little bit of an extra push, that they need, women need someone to come out to us and say, you'll be very, very good at this job and you should look into getting yourself on the candidates list. It's so patronising. It's completely patronising. That I actually think, in a way, ironically, it's actually a little bit misogynistic. <laughs> it is, it is patronising and misogynistic. And of course, what I never understand with, with all of these things is why they're just, um, just keeping things to 50% women. Why not? Why don't have a quota for gay people coming in? Mm -hmm. Why not have a quota for trans? Although I think you'd have to have half a person or a quarter of a person in if you're going to go by national percentages of who's trans. Uh, same thing for ethnic minorities. Why don't we actually have more Chinese people in Parliament than are there? You know, surely that they, they deserve a greater proportion. And disabilities. I mean, where are you going to and end this? Now, look, I think there should be more plump, fat people in Parliament, personally. They're all uh, the <laughs> You know, so I can have a chance, finally, of getting in. Uh, but these, you know, and... But it goes broader than that. You just have to look, for example, at advertising now, right? If you look at advertising, black people make up 3% of the population, and yet there are around 80% of the people you see on television. And yet Asians, Pakistanis and Indians make up around 8% of the population, and you'll rarely ever see one. Now, if that's not racism, I don't know what is. But this is an attempt to be, to be unracist, mm -hmm. but actually it's enforcing racism in another sense by excluding a far larger portion of the population, let alone white people who are still, you know, 86% of the population is white. So if you wouldn't know that watching television, um, but yeah, I agree with you. And of course, the falsehood at the heart of that is the idea that someone represents you because they are physically similar to you. I don't like the implication that someone like Diane Abbott or um, even even someone like Liz Truss or Anna Soubry or um, I mean, Kemi Badenoch, I very often agree with Kemi on everything, but I don't, I don't believe that I agree with her because we're women. I don't feel represented by her because she is... A, another woman I feel represented because we share views whereas someone like Anna Subri or Diane Abbott or even Liz Truss I don't feel very represented because I I don't I happen to disagree with them on more things possibly than I agree with them on in and varying what, degrees and what really gets me about all of this is the self-indulgence of this it's the narcissism it's this navel gazing of the Westminster bubble by which mm -hmm. I mean not only politics but also the media in yeah. the fact that we, we have a cost of living crisis, we have energy crisis, we've got a social, house, social care crisis, 
um, we've got the Ukraine crisis going on. These are meaty subjects, and yet the majority of airtime over the past two weeks has been on Growlergate, <laughs> Angela Rayner pulling a Sharon Stone basic instinct, and on tract <laughs> Tractorgate. And how people can think that that is a normal state of yeah. affairs, I think, is absolutely despicable. And it shows the dearth of talent amongst in Parliament. It shows the lack of ambition, of motivation, and the lack of real concern, I think, mm -hmm. with the real issues of the day. And, and that extends to the, the, the agenda setters in the media. Do you think that this has something to do with, with this is part of the COVID effect, that all of the news surrounding our politics now, rather than it being about policies or it being about the actual politics, has become a kind of pantomime about all of the individuals involved, that every week there seems to be a new scandal, a new instalment in the soap opera of what's going on in Parliament. And it's become very, very focused on the individuals. Is that something to do with COVID? Is that something to do with identity politics? How, how has that become the, the sort of prevailing situation? This all comes down to virtue signalling on both sides, and it's a, a question of um, pinning your colours to the mast and wanting to be seen, to be on side on everything, because everybody now, I think, is conscious of social media. They want to have a soundbite, they want to have a clippable thing that can go onto a tweet. Mm -hmm. uh, and so people are obsessed by the superficial, which uh, will, reson will, will resonate, as hollow things always sound louder, after all, rather than dealing with, with more substantive issues, which are mm -hmm. less sexy. It's far less sexy to speak out about uh, tax levels than it is to yeah. make a comment about, uh, you know, dominator tractors. And I guess a lot of these, in the game of politics, a lot of these uh, actual policies, things to do with tax, and um, yesterday there was so much news about tax that... Um, these things sort of slip out into the night underneath this enormous veil of drama to do with, as you say, you know, how Angela Rayner chose to cross her legs and, and, and that kind of thing. That um, maybe it's partly because I wonder whether it's a sort of mixture of, as you say, the navel gazing, the focus on self and identity whenever somebody tells a story or makes a point, they always need to have some kind of personal hook to make it relevant as to why that person is in, so it's created a kind of cult of of individual personalities and then at the same time we've also had two years of n a non-stop barrage of wall-to-wall -wall coverage of covid and then that stopped and we got wall-to-wall -wall coverage of ukraine and then that stopped and we got wall-to-wall -wall coverage of party gate rishi gate and all of this stuff that it maybe it's something to do with a kind of um public fatigue that that the the paper, this is what the papers are giving the people what the people want. Yeah, it is. But it's also it's a wider societal problem. I mean, you just have to look at things such as, um, for example, co comedy. Comedy mm. used to be about telling jokes, you know, an Englishman, an Irishman and a Scotsman or whatever. Now it's about my personal journey through life. Mm -hmm. All comedy is now focused on myself. And it's the most narcissistic sort of thing now that I see. everyone's obsessing. Oh, my dad gave me a tough life, you know, oh, growing up as an Indian boy here. You know, why not just mm. tell a funny joke rather than constantly turn everything into a story about and it becomes it becomes obsessive. And you see that in people's tweets now and Instagram, all of the selfies, everything in our culture is about me, myself and I. The Meghan Markleization of uh, <laughs> the public debate. Um, so let's move on to Blair's legacy, because this is this week we've had the 25th anniversary of um, Blair's election. People have been sharing on social media that that famous photograph of maybe we can put it up that famous photograph of sherry blair 
um, opening the door on the day after the election in her in her nightdress and and um, with a bunch of flowers. Um, so, what are your views of Tony Blair's legacy? What we spoke before about you know everything from the long march to mass migration. Do you think that he is Britain's worst prime minister? I'm not sure what time this is going out, whether it's <laughs> before the watershed or after the watershed, and what I can say, what language I can use Do your worst, for this Ray. man. But he was, without doubt, in my view, the most dangerous prime minister. I won't say worst, because worst can be interpreted in many different ways. Does worst mean most incompetent? I would say Boris is the most incompetent. Um, Theresa May was a terrible prime minister. Um, but in terms of danger, in terms of lasting legacy and long-term damage, perhaps irrevocable damage caused to this nation, nobody has more guilt than Tony Blair. What he's done has been more damaging to Britain than the Second World War, in my view. Second World War crippled the economy, destroyed so much of the country, but what he's done is much more insidious, and it goes to the core of Britain, Britain and British identity. And it is. It's ma mass immigration. Uh, it's the long march, it's um, education, um, and it's constitutional and, de and devolution. Look at mass immigration. This is unbelievable. We all know now the famous uh, article written by Andrew Neither in the Evening Standard in which he admitted, this was the chap who was a key speechwriter in the Labour government under Blair, who wrote a key speech for the immigration minister, and he revealed a few years ago that mass immigration was a deliberate policy of the... Uh, Labour Party to turn Britain into a truly multicultural society and there were two reasons for doing that. One was to quote rub the right's noses in diversity, charming, and um, secondly was to ensure that La the Labour Party would be easily elected in the future because ethnic minorities vote, 80% of them vote Labour mm -hmm. and that would ensure and guarantee and we're seeing that now in the cities in London and elsewhere the Tory party will never be seen again because of their strong ethnic and young populations. People often say Britain was always a land of immigrants. Absolutely not true, you know. Um, the people quote, for example, the Ugandan refugees who came over very famously. That was a huge number for the time, but that was 27,000 people. That's the average immigration number that comes over every two weeks now. And mm -hmm. this started under Blair 25 years ago that we've had more immigrants to this country since Blair came to power, so in the last 25 years, than in the last 2,000 years combined. And no society can withstand such rapid seismic shifts in demography without having severe repercussions. Not, no one's opposed to immigration, but immigration needs to happen at a slow mm -hmm. and steady pace that enables the society to adapt to the new populations and that enables the immigrants who are coming here who have to be the right sort of immigrants mm -hmm. for a start, highly skilled, unlike the unskilled labor that came in under Blair, but they need time to be able to be absorbed and assimilate. And if you have such vast numbers coming into the country, they would naturally automatically form ghettos. Mm -hmm. And we now have unbelievable segregation in this country. We have a rise in um, acid attacks, honor killings, public machete fights with groups of young black men in the streets, which you would never see before in broad daylight. There's now a Metropolitan Police Department focusing on witchcraft, if you can imagine, because <laughs> incidents of witchcraft have become so high with exorcisms, babies being, uh, and, and young children, in many cases, un in some cases, unfortunately, losing their lives in um, these despicable practices. Grooming gangs, as we know, or rape gangs, as I would like to call them correctly, in the north of England. 
deep culture of misogyny, a rise in anti-Semitism and a rise in homophobia. It's funny how on the BBC we're always told that there's a rise in mm -hmm. anti-Semitism and a rise in homophobia, and no one ever questions why is this the case. Could it be because we have a larger Muslim population, for example? None of this gets discussed. This is all part of his legacy. Britain now has, from the last census, I think 14% of the population was born abroad. The last thousand years, we only had around 1.5% of the population born abroad. Even when the Romans and Vikings were here, it was between 3 and 5%. We've mm -hmm. never seen such a shift, and that is extremely damaging for our society because people are not having any exposure to British culture, British tradition, and British... Um, um, sensitivities and when you have an education system supported by Tony Blair's Labour government which our current Tories have done nothing about they have an enforced policy that elevates minority cultures over the majority existing mm -hmm. British culture so when you have an enforced policy of multiculturalism combining with uh, mass immigration you get segregation and you have parts of this country now alas that actually think that this is a Muslim majority nation. There are, there are schools in the north of England who think that Britain is 90% Asian and Muslim. It's, it's mm -hmm. despicable. That's the mass immigration <laughs> side. But then, yes, but then we just have to look at the long march through the institutions. And I think this goes really to the heart of, of, of what's wrong with Tony Blair. People don't actually realize how many communists were in Tony Blair's cabinet. He was a confirmed Trotskyist. John Reid was uh, a member of the Communist Party of Great Britain and a declared Leninist and Stalinist. Alan Milburn used to run a uh, Marxist bookshop. Peter Mandelson was a member of the Young uh, Communist League and uh, used to hand out copies of the Morning Star outside Kilburn Tube Station. And Alistair Darling was a member of uh, the international, um, some other communist Marxist organization. These were the people, the key players in the country holding the great offices of state. They were at the heart of this government. So, and what they've done is to refashion institutions in ways that were unrecognizable. You know, if you walk through Whitehall in London, you see these wonderful edifices, these grand structures, which look about, which look to everyone that Britain is a confident imperial sort of nation was grounded in monarchy and tradition and so forth. But the reality is the people that inhabit those buildings today bear no resemblance to previous generations. We have cuckoos in the nests. You can have a revolution without flying red flags from the rooftops. There's been this silent cultural revolution. And unfortunately, after 10 years now of Tory government, I've seen no efforts by this government to try to redress that. And it seems as if it may even be too late now. The rot may have set in because of, again, another Blair policy, education, education, education. We have far too many people going to university who should be in apprenticeships and they're being indoctrinated in this left-wing Marxist ideology. And we know full well that um, if only under 25s had had a vote at the last election, the Tories mm -hmm. wouldn't have gained one seat in parliament. Obviously, when Blair won, he had this enormous historic landslide victory. And so many people, possibly even many of the people watching, will have voted for Blair because the, the, what you described there wasn't the Blair that they thought that they were getting. That, that, that isn't what they expected, that um, he seems very, very centre-left to the point that now actually um, many Conservatives are probably more similar to Blair than they are to the Conservatives of old. Um, do you think that people expected that that was what they were what they were getting? And also, I think with the with the long view now, because for me, I don't really remember what the country was like before Blair, because I was a, I was a young child when when Blair won. Um, so, 
with that long view on Blair's legacy, all of those things that you described there, obviously there are elements that quite clearly you can attribute to Blair, like increasing immigration and so on. But are there other explanations with that long view, like successive governments, including successive conservative governments and failures there, that explain things like high crime rate? Because a lot of these people who are involved in crime and so on um, won't necessarily be immigrants themselves. They may be the children of immigrants. There may be other explanations for rising crime rates and so on. So with that long view, how much of that do you think is fair to attribute to Blair? And how much of, of what occurred afterwards do you think could have been predicted by those who chose to vote for him? Well, when I, I didn't say that crime was the rising crime was due to mm -hmm. Blair. I named specific types of incidents and crimes mm -hmm. which are directly related to his policies. But yeah, look, Tony Blair understandably got elected at a time when you had had the Tory party in power from 1979 through to 1997, and it almost seemed as if the Labour Party would be unelectable, and it had to change, and it occupied the ground. And in Britain of the, of the 1990s, you did have another sleaze era, a far more sleazy era than we have we have now, uh, of uh, back-to-basics policies in, in John Major's government, and people were tired of the Tories. And the 90s, the communism had collapsed. There was this feeling of Francis Fukuyama that it was the end of history, and there needed to be uh, an awakening of a, of a new society. You had Bill Clinton doing a similar policy in America. So I can absolutely see why uh, they would cleave to Blair, because Blair looked l less left-wing than, say, Michael Foote and other Labour leaders had before him. Um, but he was still a, a Trotskyist. This is the thing, you know, he was very much the, the wolf in sheep's clothing. People didn't really understand. Those who were inside did know, and Peter Hitchens talks about this, how he said people were, the people in the inner coterie were celebrating and waving red flags, and they, they said this is a new dawn, because they really did see this as a time. They, they thought they might have one or two parliaments maximum, and they wanted to inflict the most radical change that they could, so they went hell for leather in that parliament to try to change the country, and the British public had no idea about that. Because yes, there was investment in infrastructure, there were investment in, in transport, and you know, by the time of the millennium, London alone looked so much cleaner and better, so there were definitely good aspects of in, term, in terms of investment. But nobody was privy to this secret plan, and it's not a real, I went, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but there was a clear agenda at play here to radically transform, and as I said, Credit to them, right? I don't agree with them, but they had a, they wanted to change the country and they did it. Our government, since 2010, has had a chance to reverse that long march through the institutions. Boris has an 80-seat majority, he can do what he wants, and he's squandered this in the most ridiculous way, because we actually should have had, with an 80-seat majority, we should have had at least 10 years, so until 2029, if not beyond that. For the Tory party to actually reverse that long is march. That, is that because they lack vision? They don't have the same vision for society that Blair had? Yeah, or, well, or they don't have a vision for society in the way that Blair did? They, Obviously not the same one. They lack Dominic Cummings. <laughs> Boris was, was only ever a puppet. Everyone knows mm. that he's a very much a, a wishy-washy liberal on, on all issues, particularly on immigration, for example. Um, but Dominic Cummings understood the pulse of the nation. He understood mm. what needed to be done. And um, the loss of Dominic Cummings and his replacement with Carrie Antoinette, um, uh, who's now pulling his strings. And you can see that from environmental policy onwards, it's very much a, a red Tory uh, party of, um, I wouldn't even say red, a green Tory party of, of his wife. 
uh, who's basically the last person he listens to at night before he goes to bed. And that's basically, Boris always believes what the last person told him, and she has his ear. And I, I really do think that. There is no vision at all. They're very good at talking the talk, the modern Tory party. So we hear about Rwanda policies, we hear about pushing ships back in the boats back in the channel. But these are all just sound bites. There's never any meaty substance behind these things, and they're always soon forgotten about, and they're always being issued in order to divert attention away from other issues. What do you think of the calls within the Labour Party to return to Blair, um, that they, they essentially want to replicate Blair's legacy and that they think that that is the way that they can basically basically the way that they can salvage the Labour Party from complete oblivion. I think it's a very smart policy because he was the only person who gave the Labour Party three consecutive electoral victories. Um, he's a man who, um, because of the changes he brought into the country, um, has would have a strong following amongst the centre of, of the country. Not Blair standing again, but somebody in his mould. Mm -hmm. um, he has changed the country and it's because over 25 years one generation has now grown up that I think it would be a, a, someone with charisma and with that sort of agenda, I think, would do very well in Parliament. And what, in terms of, um, so as I say, you know, people wouldn't, ne wouldn't necessarily have known what they were going to get when they voted for Blair. If there is a new Labour leader in the mould of Blair and people vote for them and they, they win at a, at a general election, what do you? What would you expect that the implications of what that would be in terms of that individual's legacy? Well, the, the, Tony Blair. I, I don't think anybody, not even Tony Blair, could have imagined we would have the rapid transformation we've had in woke identity politics of the last ten years. No one could have foreseen that, and I think Blair has been shocked by that too. And you've seen him issue statements which uh, show his concern with the woke identity politics that has overtaken the Labour Party. So I think anyone who's sensible know, would know that um, if you want to carry the nation, you have to be more centrist on this. And so I, I, I think they would understand that. So let, let's finally um, move on to this story that, that you sent me, um, that had me, I, I was bawling with laughter at it. I think it's hilarious. Um, obviously, it's quite serious, but some aspects of it are very funny. Uh, this Canadian government report um, that calls for a ban on Catholic, um, Orthodox, Jewish and Muslim chaplains because essentially the, the fact that they, that they only have male clergy doesn't conform to Canada's theological judgment on tolerance. Um, one of the things in this that I, I, I thought was particularly amusing um, is that, so this comes from a, an, a, an Orwellian sounding um, uh, panel called the Minister's Advisory Panel on Systemic uh, Racism and Discrimination. And Trudeau gave it, this is a quote, a mandate, a clear mandate to seek out policies, processes and practices that enable systemic racism and discrimination in the Department of Defence. And that the panel was to, quote, um, to hunt out, quote, uh, all forms of systemic racism and discrimination, including anti-Indigenous and anti-Black racism, LGBTQ2 plus prejudice, gender bias, right-wing extremism and white supremacy. Um, and that according to this article, each of or the, these, these weekly meetings of the advisory pa panel would begin with members um, doing this sort of prayer where they would turn towards, quote, our grandfathers, the thunder beings, our grandmother, moon, and our creator, however imagined. 
So um, I just wanted to get your thoughts on this insane story. Thunder beings are go. Yes, <laughs> no, it's, it's absolutely remarkable, this document. It, it's not government policy yet, but it's a government body that has issued the, these report recommendations. Interestingly, that the terms of reference were to root out systemic racism, including anti-black racism. I don't know why you need to specify that. Surely racism is racism. Mm -hmm. Why would you need to specify that? And also... It's, Not anti-Chinese racism. Yeah, exactly. No, yeah. And, uh, and also uh, right-wing extremism. Why do you need to say right-wing? Can't you just say extremism? Because surely, you know, Muslim extremism or uh, left-wing extremism is equally insidious. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's very telling. The bias apparent and just in those terms mm -hmm. of reference is, is overwhelming. But people have to understand what this is. This is a direct attack on religious Liberty, what this report, this government report is saying is that um, because women aren't allowed to become Catholic priests or Orthodox Jewish uh, rabbis or uh, imams in Islam, that these religions should be banned from the Canadian Armed Forces, that these chaplains should not be hired because of their sexist um, policies, which aren't in keeping with the, the army's policies. This is state-sanctioned control. This is state-sanctioned religion. All I could think of when I read mm -hmm. this was of China, <laughs> the Chinese government appointing Catholic bishops rather than the Pope, because the Catholic bishops there that they appoint toe the party line. Mm -hmm. And I don't see how this is any different in principle. Uh, and of course, these, uh, uh, the Canadian government is now saying through this report that monotheistic religions should be banned, meaning these three religions, because they don't believe in paganism and they believe in converting polytheists. So basically what they're saying is if you believe in um, Jupiter and Apollo and um, you know Achilles and all the old Roman gods, that's, mm. e that's more valid than believing in Jesus Christ. It, it, it is ultimately subversive, isn't it? That the, and it, it is a, it's really the the uh, Canadian government taking stance on theology. So they, many people have compared uh, woke ideology to some kind of religion. That it's a kind of religious thinking. It, it does look as if it's a kind. Of, it's becoming a sort of state-sanctioned ideology in Canada uh, that they are now imposing now on the armed forces. But presumably, this is something that is going to have implications more widely that they may see in other. Um, other parts of the civil service or the country as a whole. I mean, think about, about it, right? What they're saying is this is a country of 30 million people out of a population of billions. It, Canada is about 150 years old, but the, the Trudeau government is only a few years old and it's a party that basically represents fewer than half of the nation. And they are going to tell the oldest, grandest religions in the world that have existed for millennia, that represent billions of people, what is correct and what's not correct. And they're doing it in the name of inclusivity. And they're doing it in the name of <laughs> inclusivity. But let, let, let there be no mistake, this is so insidious. What this means, if, if a soldier is dying on his deathbed, and, and if he's a deeply committed Christian, and he calls for a Catholic chaplain, they will say no to him. That, I think, is absolutely remarkable state of affairs that we have. It's, 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 a, it's religious intolerance, and it's state-sanctioned control of religion. On that hideous point, uh, we're going to wrap up. So thank you very much, Rafe, and thank you for watching. Please like and subscribe and let us know what you think down in the comments. We will see you next time on Newspeak. Hello. If you're enjoying the New Culture Forum channel and you believe in our mission, may I invite you to join our membership scheme at the link below or on our website, newcultureforum.org.uk. Our work is more important now than ever and we have great plans ahead.
for the future, but we can't do it without your support. From as little as £3 per month, you can help ensure that we continue on our mission. As a member, you'll receive a range of benefits, including access to exclusive content, invitations to our private events, including here at our studios, free copies of our books, and much, much more, including, of course, our famous NCF mug. If you aren't able to become a member, then please help us by clicking this button and subscribing to our channel. It's completely free. Just remember to also click the bell icon so that you can get notifications when we post new videos. Thank you.